Hello, this is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from February 27th, 2022, entitled Deeply Moving Experience. I hope you enjoy. God bless. My gospel text is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your pew Bibles in the New Testament section on page 66. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Whoops, Peter and John and James. And went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes clothes became dazzling white. Now, this is something that I have to point out. Because Luke does this, and it's really kind of fascinating. And he puts the word suddenly suddenly they saw two men, Luke says, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, nice nice ad there, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered into the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, My chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. This is truly a deeply moving experience. We we like to refer to these as literally mountaintop experiences. And here's a perfect example of this. Peter has identified, just right before this in chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 18 through 20, that he has proclaimed Jesus as Savior. It's important to point that out. Yet he still doesn't really exactly know what that means. Now the Gospel writer, Luke, pulls the confession and what we call the transfiguration story together, in which the one answers more precisely for the other. As at the baptism, and as other significant ministries, events in his ministry, Jesus is praying at the transfiguration. Now, just a side note. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is found in all three of those. With anthropologically speaking, It's kind of fascinating that there's a transfiguration story. As in the other synoptics, the main characters appear, Moses and Elijah, who honestly reflect theological nuances not missed by the early Christian commentators. There's the cloud, the great terror you would hear, words spoken by an unseen voice meant for the disciples where he says, this is, and he says, you know, my chosen, my son. And then 
Who can forget the iridescence or the glowing face that makes this one of the church's indelible memories? I want to break it down for you a little bit. The early first century would have heard Moses as kind of a superhero. It's kind of fascinating. There's a writer at the time by the name of Philo uh, who writes about uh, two or three different superhero people. And he happens to write about Moses. Now, interestingly enough, Philo writes that Moses was a strapping young man and talks about how big his muscles were and how good-looking he was and how just by his mere beauty, everyone followed him. And then he wants to talk about the fact that his birth, not death, was a miraculous experience, that it was destined for him to be a great leader and to be wrought up by the Pharaoh's own daughter. Then there's the other part that Philo talks about in the sense that he's so awesome that he can literally bring plagues and part seas. And why wouldn't you want to believe in Moses? So the first century churches heard about Moses again. Now there's Elijah. Elijah is one of the, another superhero in the Hebrew Bible in the sense that he does all of these great things. You might remember him as making the bet with Jezebel's false priests and prophets. He, he says to them, listen, you make your altar, I'll make mine. Whichever God can make it light on fire without us wins. So they do their altar, they throw oil on it, they dance around it, they have their blood rituals and orgies and all kinds of stuff, and nothing happens. Elijah builds his altar he digs a moat, he covers it in water, and it's like a, a, a cinematic movie, movie moment where he snaps his fingers and poof, the whole thing catches on fire. And that would have been enough if it was on TV. But no, no. Elijah then kills all the false priests and prophets and then goes, hides in a cave, which is always a weird part of the story. You see, these two characters right there have this theological nuance to the first century audience that makes them think, oh my goodness, something amazing is going to take place. It makes sense then when Peter says, we got to do something special here. I mean, literally the presence of God was in this place and we saw it. Look, we just saw Moses, and we saw Elijah, and then there you, I mean, Jesus, you were like glowing. We have to build something. But it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right story. The deeply moving experience of seeing the exact moment where God uses real, concrete things to reveal Jesus Christ. He uses a mountain which they would have all heard of from their childhood. He uses the face the face of Jesus glowing in such a way that you could feel the presence of God. It was not a, there was no joke happening here. There was no special effects. There was no crazy magical moment. It was miraculous. Bodies from the past. And then there's the cloud. Oh, I love the cloud part. For those of you that were in my Bible study as we studied the book of Exodus, God's voice is not been able to be heard by human ears because you would die like literally just die you're not even able to see the presence of God 
because you would just die. Its magnificence was so big that God would just, it would just blow your mind and you would literally die. So God appears to Moses in a cloud. We always say smoke, but that's, that's another part. You have to go back and listen to my Bible studies. In, this, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the story of Exodus, God appears to them through a cloud. It's amazing. And Moses hears the voice of God and doesn't die. Here, in the midst of their terror and excitement, I always don't, I don't look at this, this cloud as something terrifying. I look at it as, I want to think of, <laughs> this sounds awful, like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. I want to think about it as the cloud is wrapping it, it, itself around Peter, James, and John. And then, and in that moment, Peter, James, and John get to hear God's voice say, this is my son, my chosen. You're going to listen to him. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Fred Craddock talks about how this works that this is one of those passages where proclaimers scratch their heads and wonder, to what shall I compare this? What in our lives is a rough parallel to what we read here? One attempt, he says, of course, is to connect the transfiguration with the valley of service which follows. He then ends it by saying, we then end up with a wonderful exhortation and application that life consists of a rhythm that includes moments of inspiration and Moments of pedestrian duty. We have to have both in order to follow the path of God. While the rhythm is true, is this really what Luke, the theologian, intends? Maybe, while we're listening to the extraordinariness of this event, that we're lost in the moment of the wonder and the worship that takes place. Maybe in the holy awe there's this place where God is present. But then there's the response. They see this. They, Peter responds. Now it's interesting to point out, folks, that in the process of this, there's a thing of prayer that takes place. Something that they've done naturally. It's, it's a part of their habitual life. It's something that they have to do. Notice that Luke says Peter, James, and John are up there praying, and they've, they've suffered so long, they've had to stay awake, and blah, blah, blah. But for the one time that they did, this moment happens. While Jesus is praying. Now, I want to talk to you about this a little bit. We're getting ready to start Lent. For those of you that don't know what Lent is, it's something that Christians have, uh, well, without being bitter, my liturgical studies understand, it's something Christians appropriated from the Jewish culture, but I'm not bitter. That's another conversation for another day. It just happens to follow on the same time of Pesach, what we know as Passover. But Christians have made it something that is holy, and hopefully have made it holy. My problem with Lent is it gets confused. 
We try to figure out what we're supposed to do during Lent. Some ministers challenge you to fast. I need you to understand that fasting is a hard thing to do. It's a, it's a spiritual practice. John the Baptist does it. He goes into the wilderness. He eats honey and wild locusts. You're all more than welcome to do that under direct medical supervision. But you have to understand that fasting is not just something that is a lukewarm experience for the hearers of the first century. It's a way of life. It may have been a little harsh in the 815 service because I think fasting has become the cliche catchphrase that Christians use during this time frame. When they say things like, you know what I'm going to do because I, wanna, I just want to make it through this time of Lent. I'm going to give up Dr. Pepper. I'm sure God cares about your soda addiction. I think I'm going to give up chocolate bars. Cool. I'm sure God cares about the, the, the Mars industry going out of business because you stopped eating a Hershey bar. But everybody knows you've got to eat a Butterfinger. You see, the problem with this is we've turned Lent into this lukewarm experience. Jesus is up there in the moment, and Peter, James, and John are watching this moment because they're expecting to see God do great things. And yes, Luke says, Peter, James, and John are there, and they're still awake. But what, what would it look like if we looked at Lent as the time to rebuild our spiritual life with God and took it serious and not made it so lukewarm? And look, you, you might need to do that. Maybe... Maybe you want to give up Dr. Pepper. Maybe you want to give up a chocolate bar. But please understand, that's, that's different than fasting, where you give up everything and fully rely on the presence of God to feed and nourish you. Maybe. Maybe we change our prayer existence, and we take prayer seriously like Jesus does throughout the entire Gospels. If we say that we are to follow in the image of Christ, then we should be praying. Unceasingly, Paul says. In this experience, Peter and James and John had to have had a physical response. They most likely would have been kneeling or laying or maybe even dancing. But in that moment, they would communicate their worship to a holy God. And Peter wants to build a temple. I don't think Peter wanted an encounter with God. Rather, I think he wanted a place for him to have that encounter to happen later. You know how this works, right? I felt the presence of God at this place. I want to go back to that place because maybe it'll happen again. He didn't want to pray like Jesus was praying. You know, a way of praying that was so powerful that God's presence made his face glow. Peter wanted to know that it was possible to do so that maybe someday he could do it himself. Now there's this ancient story about a mystic who was sought in times of crisis. He would go off to a private place and in the woods and would build a fire in a specific way and say a special prayer and then return with an answer from God. Well, when the mystic died, 
One of his students heard the pleas for help, so he went to the same place in the woods, but he didn't know how to build the fire. So he prayed the prayer and asked God for guidance, and God answered him. Well, when he died, one of his students faced a similar crisis, but he didn't know how to build the fire, nor did he know where to find the secret place in the woods, so he just prayed the prayer the wise mystic had used and asked God to help. And God answered him. In the next generation, they learned that it wasn't the place that mattered. It wasn't even the fire. It wasn't even the specific prayer that had been praised. It was about placing their trust in a God that allowed them to hear God's answer. They learned that because no one could remember the prayer, and yet God somehow answered their pleas. Now, Peter would eventually learn that it wasn't the mountain that made this event special. It wasn't the particular words that Jesus had prayed either. It wasn't even about the earnest seeking of God that was behind the way that Jesus prayed. The secret was in the relationship that Jesus had with God. Now, in Peter's defense, which I don't do very often, he eventually learns this. And we read about it in Acts chapter 3. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. And as we enter into the season of Lent, the regular habit and discipline of prayer that Jesus had and Peter eventually learns about is both instructive and informative. It reminds us that the secret to a strong prayer life is a healthy relationship with the God to whom we pray. And in a rather circular way, it is made healthy by spending regular periods of time in prayer and fasting. But not every prayer experience will be like this one, and I don't want to make some sort of story up and say that when you pray, you might start glowing, and a cloud may surround you like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, But in this moment, we're imitating Jesus. Jesus spends other nights in prayer where no one seems to notice a difference. But he is strengthened by it. And more importantly, his relationship with God is healthier because of it. It's those experiences that make this one possible. So here's your challenge. During Lent, I want to encourage you to find times to pray. And here's the part that's uncomfortable, and to try different methods of praying. For some, that means that you'll be dusting off some old prayer practices and pulling out your devotionals or learning how to kneel again. Or for some of us, we may even have to just remember the Lord's Prayer because we might not have words that we can say. But the goal then becomes the same, to pray every day. There's no need for our church to be lukewarm. I would argue that it is time for us to stop being lukewarm, to practice what it is that we preach, and maybe, just maybe, you will glow in such a way that will bring light into a dark world. Stranger things have happened.
however you do this, I want to encourage you to do this in such a way that when we celebrate and mourn the death of Jesus, that we have something to be joyous about in his resurrection experience. And be expecting a deeply moving experience. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.